You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Nick, how are you doing this afternoon? Doing great, Dave. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. We're going to talk about investment philosophy today. Yeah. The first thing the first thing to know about investment philosophies is you should have one, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> you know, that's a great point too, Dave, because I think a lot of times people, especially on the client end, if you're going and you are making an investment of of any kind with a financial professional, you really ought to ask them, you know, hey, what's your investment philosophy and make sure right. it measures up to kind of what your expectations are. There's a lot of different philosophies out there. And as I said, you know, the most important thing is to have one. You know, I, I always I always like to uh, quote Yogi Berra in these situations with, you know, if you don't know, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there. And, you know, that investment philosophy is kind of the roadmap to make sure you get where you're where you want to go and understand your directions. I think that's a great point. I think everybody, you know, like I said, should should ask those questions and and. I can tell you what an investment philosophy is not. It's not a sales pitch, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, it's, it's just kind of, you know, how you feel about investing and how you're going to go about taking care of a portfolio. And intuitively, as the person um, who is being advised or, or um, making investments, that should align with kind of what your thoughts are. And it shouldn't be, you know, written in a different language. You should be able to understand it and it should make sense to you. In, in kind of how you would like to see your assets be invested. We've kind of distilled our investment philosophy down to uh, 10 declarations and uh, thought it'd be fun to walk through that and share them with our audience. And uh, not that you need to adopt our investment philosophy, but it should at least serve as uh, food for thought for how you would want to approach the markets and how you would want your advisor to think about your, your portfolio if you're working with a professional. Absolutely. So point number one is, you know, we accept the fact and acknowledge the fact that short-term market returns cannot be known or predicted. We uh, maintain the belief that we do not have a crystal ball and nor do we want to have a crystal ball. Um, we maintain the belief that we can't predict it and, and create our philosophy knowing that um, in the short term, we don't know what's going to happen. The human brain wants to like be able to look back and see causality for everything. And there's this human instinct to be able to say, oh, yes, you know, the markets were up today because X, Y, Z happened. And, you know, the, the media is very good at saying, you know, here's the market report for the day and here's why. And you, it, it kind of creates this impression if you could predict the why for tomorrow, you'd know what was going to happen, right? Tomorrow's why you can you can ask at four o'clock and we'll be able to tell you what the uh, thoughts for the day were. That's right. And, and interestingly enough, if you watch any of the market pundits or, you know, the CNBCs, you don't hear a whole lot about, you know, hey, well, this is what the stock market's done in the last 10 years. It's always about what happened in the last five minutes and what's going to happen in the next five minutes. <laughs> so part of that philosophy stems out of the idea of market efficiency. The markets are usually efficient. And what that means is that the markets move in time with information. And, I, and, and so when a new data point comes out about the economy or about a particular company, that news is incorporated into the markets almost instantaneously. 
the main takeaway is it's extremely hard to pick individual stocks because of this efficiency, because this Mm -hmm. information is out there and it's acted on so quickly. It's almost impossible. And it well, it really is impossible most of the time, unless you get lucky to get ahead of one of those trends. And so the price of any asset on any given day is the average value that every market participant assigns to the news that we know. So, you know, if if somebody's buying a stock, they think that the news that is known about it, about that company, warrants a higher price, but somebody else is selling them that stock and they think that it's fairly priced or or even higher than it should be based on the news that's out there. But that price today is essentially the price that everybody's agreed to. And, you know, I always, uh, to put it in real world terms, early in my career, I had a lot of GM retirees as clients. And I would hear things like, oh, you know, GM stock's really going to take off because the new Corvette's coming out in three months. And, you know, I'm pretty sure everybody that follows GM stock already has a pretty good idea when the Corvette's coming out, right? Right. And, and it's, you know, it's built into the price. It's the surprise that isn't built into the price. Like if GM suddenly has a recall on the Corvette and they announce it tomorrow morning, that's going to be news that's going to move the market. Or it can work the other way too. Maybe they thought they were going to have a recall and it's not going to, you know, not going to have the impact. But everything that is already known about the company is built into the price where it is today. That's efficiency. We use that term a lot. So it's important to think about. Yeah, for sure. The next, you know, declaration we would make is you've got to understand that risk and return are related. If you're going to expect a higher return on your portfolio than say savings accounts or CDs at the bank, you have to take risk. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think it's one that um, everybody should really, not only is it related to investing, but, you know, a lot of things in life as well. But just <laughs> this kind of thought process behind, you know, there's no easy ways to get rich quick, especially when it comes to investing. If you think that you know the next stock that's going to be Amazon, and you go out and purchase that, you know, you may be right, but do not be fooled by the fact that you also may be wrong. And in order to be right and to get those kinds of gains, there's a tremendous amount of risk that goes along with that. And I think that sometimes people miss that kind of relationship between risk and reward. Anything that anybody tells you is going to have a great return also is going to have a great risk in, in comparing that to, you know, what the other available options are. So two things that come out of that that declaration. One is usually when we talk about taking more risk in a portfolio, we're talking about taking in using more stock in the portfolio. If you just think of things in simple terms of cash assets, bond assets, and stock assets, the more stock you have in your portfolio, the higher the expected return, but the more that return is going to vary and fluctuate over time. The other thing, and I think this is important, especially in times like this, since the Dow hit a new record this week, right? So people, a lot of times their response to that is, well, the, the market's really high now. So, you know, we should wait to invest. Well, that philosophy of risk and return being related would still tell us that if you want to expect a higher return over time, 
you don't wait, you get invested now, because over time, we would still expect that stock exposure to lead to a higher return. It's that's a great point, Dave, as far as, you know, when to invest. The Japanese proverb of when the best time to invest was, you know, where the best time to plant a tree was 10 years ago. The second right. best time is right now. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's perfect. That's perfect. Yes. And uh, so also all along the lines of risk and reward, the next point we would make is one we've made before. We did almost a whole podcast on the idea of systemic risk and non-systemic risk. And taking the right type of risk is important. Right. With non-systemic risk being the company risk of buying individual companies, you can't, you can get rid of that risk by diversification. So, you know, owning many companies as opposed to one stock makes takes some of that risk away. And the important thing about non-systemic risk, that risk of owning one company, is that you don't expect your returns to go up based on owning one company. Right. And we definitely touched on that in our previous podcast. So if you if you hadn't didn't haven't listened to that one, make sure you do. But it's just one of those, you know, individual stocks as a whole typically are not a great idea. They're definitely not a great idea for an entire portfolio. Um, maybe on a smaller scale is more of a sentimental type of thing. Um, but th- and this is the exact point or the exact reason why, because you're taking on risk that you don't necessarily have to take on and you're not being rewarded for it. Right. Everybody spends their energy, or I should say a lot of investors spend their energy focusing on picking stocks and picking mutual funds. Mm-hmm. And the next point we would make as part of our philosophy, is that asset allocation is so much more important than investment selection. And studies have shown that asset allocation, when we say asset allocation, we're talking about how you mix together stocks and bonds and cash type investments, right? Just to keep it on a high level. Then there's all different subcategories of that. But those decisions drive 94% of a portfolio's return which funds and which stocks you use to create that asset allocation only account for about 6% of the return you'd expect. Yeah. So from our perspective, we spend a lot of time on creating asset allocations and not as much time on figuring out what the best mutual fund is going to be for that specific slots. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and the reason is there's not really any, you know, return for it. There's not really any, you know, it, in my opinion, things usually can only get worse. They're not necessarily going to get better. So if we can buy an index, we're going to, we know we're going to be in the ballpark. We might not be the best, but we're certainly not going to be the worst. And if we're not the best, we're going to be pretty close. Well, and, and I think a good illustration of that is as fiduciaries and as, as financial planners, we're always trying to use the best funds and, and select the best options for somebody's portfolio. But say you have a situation where someone owns a particular mutual fund that maybe isn't the greatest for its category, but there'd be large tax consequences if they sold it. Right. A lot of times we'll work around something like that because even though it's not the ideal best candidate for that part of their portfolio, the difference is going to be negligible compared to perhaps what the tax cost of selling it just for the sake of selling it and replacing it with something similar would be. 
So, you know, that, that I think is a, it's, it's not that it's, it's, it's not that we're not trying to use the best things. It's just, sometimes you have to compromise and you can get all caught up in whether one fund, and we're going to get into taxes and expenses here in a minute, but you know, whether one is the best in that category versus, you know, something that's good. And then I think the people that are, you know, looking at mutual funds, trying to figure out what's the be- what the best one is, are really going based on past performance, right? Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. look at this fund. It, you know, led the category last year. Well, usually oh. those ones that lead the category do so either because they're taking on more risk than what the category mm-hmm. is. And secondarily, a lot of times they lead one year and then they're the laggard the right. next year. And so right. by the time you figure out they're the leader, it's too late. Portfolio expenses are another important factor. And so when we are trying to determine what the right candidates to go in a portfolio are, you know, if the the portfolio returns are only as good as what you get to keep. So we're always keeping an eye on controlling expenses. And a lot of that times that means using index funds, passive approaches that aren't trying to pick the best you know, they're not trying to beat the market. They're just trying to replicate the market. Yeah. And this has really changed over, you know, the last 10 or so years because um, prices have gone down quite dramatically Mm -hmm. with trading costs coming down. And so what used to be an index fund in a active allocation fund, those prices used to be closer than, and they're becoming, they're, they're going in opposite directions, right? The active funds are a little bit, are becoming more expensive and the index mm-hmm. funds are becoming a little bit cheaper. And so that gap is widening, which is why we've steered more towards the index and passive because right. that is, that's a bigger difference than it used to be. And when we talk about an, an index fund just tries to match a per particular part of the market rather than trying to pick the best stocks in a particular category. And, and so part of that is that, you know, studies have shown there's piles of research that show that most active managers don't outperform their benchmarks when you adjust for fees. So you'd be better off just trying to replicate the benchmark, which is what an index fund does. So taxes matter. So along with fees, you know, what you pay Uncle Sam for your portfolio makes a difference too. So when we're dealing with portfolios outside of retirement accounts, we need to make sure that they're managed tax efficiently. Yeah, and I, and I think this is something that gets missed an awful lot. At least it does when we have clients that are coming in with portfolios. You know, just the the active tax management and understanding what your tax situation is and being able to manage it on an ongoing basis. This isn't a decision between hey. Let's buy uh, or let's buy tax efficient mutual funds and bonds versus um, taxable ones. It's also a hey, here's what's going on with my tax situation this year. Here's some opportunities to improve that situation throughout the year. So it's an ongoing process. One of the things that we've we've seen is that you can manage asset allocations within the markets as long as it's done cost effectively and add to return over time. So using models that maybe emphasize particular sectors of the market based on economic conditions can lead to outperformance. As long as it's done cost effectively, that's that's the main thing. Yeah, so definitely one of those um, where 
it can add value. It can make an impact, but we're always very careful about how we do that. And so, you know, we're never going to overweight a category that it's going to increase a risk level to. And that's right. another thing to keep in mind is just because we can add value if it's done cost effectively doesn't mean that we want to add value and add risk. We want to be very careful of how and when we add value. So there are also factors that have been identified that lead, lead to long-term outperformance. And we tend to favor funds and models that will overweight those factors. So for example, um, smaller companies tend to outperform larger companies over time as a group. And companies that are considered value stocks compared to growth stocks tend to outperform over time. And I think the key one there is over time. And, and as we talk about, we're always long-term focused in the short term, anything, any, you know, there's lots of different cycles where growth outperforms value and vice versa. But in the long term, it always kind of returns to that mean. And that's what we're looking for when we're creating portfolios. What is a long-term strategy right. that we can that we can implement and and then make sure that we're not, you know, tempted by or changing things based on short-term outcomes. Our 10th and final declaration in our investment philosophy is that complexity does not mean outperformance. And I, I, I can't emphasize enough how many times, like this situation we're in right now with, with very low interest rates and very low returns on bond funds and low expectations is a great example because how many emails have we gotten in the last few days from bond fund companies that have this new approach, you know, claim to have this new complicated approach that takes some of the risk or provides more yield? Anything that those things always come at a cost. I think that's that's the best way to put it. And just because a, a philosophy is complex doesn't mean it's a better approach to investing. This is definitely one of my favorite points on our investment philosophy that, you know, that we buy into complexity usually means somebody's making money on something <laughs> mm-hmm. because it's complex. And so complex means usually pay more for it. Um, yep. But like you said, in there, yep. you know, a lot of this business is still derived from that sales aspect. So they're trying to create a sales pitch and they're playing on one of two things, either um, FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. Yep. So, you, you know, you don't want your portfolio to not get in on this bond fund or, you know, whatever it is. And then the other one is loss aversion, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to be sitting down 40% when the market has a huge correction. So you should buy into our complex strategy. And, and while those things usually are based on past performance and had merit based on past mm-hmm. performance, very rarely do they translate into what's coming next. And I think that's right. an important distinction too. Funds that have low volatility in the name. Right. You know, they're basically hedging those portfolios so that they don't move as much. But and this isn't the place to get into complicated hedging strategies, but those things come at a cost. They're going to limit your upside in the good times. They may limit your downside in the bad times. But a lot of times those strategies were built for the last problem. Right. Right. And, you know, what worked to prevent downside risk during the financial crisis is not necessarily the same thing that prevents downside risk during the COVID crisis or whatever the next thing will be. Um, Whatever it is, they'll build a fund that would have beaten it 
Right. But, you know, by then it'll be too late. So, yeah. and, and, you know, sometimes complexity can just be as simple as having a ton of moving parts. You know, some very effective investment strategies can be uh, just a handful of funds managed very passively and and get the job done. Yeah, and so. I think that's a that's a great point too because um, you know one of the hardest things as an investor is sometimes the best thing to do is not do anything at all, right? And that goes in the face of almost everything we've been taught about <laughs> life in general, let alone investing. And unfortunately, right. that's not what people necessarily want to hear a lot of times when they call and say, "Hey, what's going on with the market? And what should we yep. do?" Just do um, something. But it's our responsibility to do what's in our client's best interest. And sometimes that means we're not going to do anything. Most of the time, right. that means we're not going to do anything because we've done all the hard work beforehand and set up the right portfolio yeah. so that when the bad times come, we don't have to panic and we don't have to make changes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, um, kind of in line with that, I, how many times during the last 12 months did we say, you know, we didn't invest your money thinking times like this weren't going to happen, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, so at the end of the day, these things boil down to the idea that staying invested over the long haul in a portfolio that is tax efficient, cost efficient, and takes the appropriate amount of risk for someone's goals is the key to long-term success. And that really, you know, it's not only about creating the portfolio, but also about living with and letting the portfolio mm-hmm. continue to grow. So, but yeah, that's our, you know, our philosophy and, and what we believe in. And, and mm-hmm. we've been in this business long enough to see a lot of different things out there, a lot of different strategies. And this is the one that we kind of always have come back to and, and we've seen mm-hmm. it be successful in our years and we've mm-hmm. seen it be successful for a lot of people over a long amount of time. And I guess the thing I would say, you know, to folks out there who aren't clients is you should understand the investment philosophy that you are using or that your advisor is using. And if you don't, you should talk about it. And yeah. odds are, if you're working with a professional, there's at least, you know, some you know, philosophical background to it. So there is something you can hang your hat on, but, uh, but you need to know what it is and how it fits and what you're comfortable with. And there are people out there that are going to hear our investment philosophy and say, Nope, you know what? That's not for me. I want to be picking stocks and have an active, you know, and um, at least, you know, we'll know that going into it. Absolutely. And I I think, too, that, you know, the importance of having a philosophy and writing it down, whether or not, you know, you're working for us or you're working on your by yourself or you're working with somebody else, is that there's always going to be opportunities and things that spring up that you're going to say, oh, hmm, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. And going back and being able to go back to your philosophy and say it doesn't really fit in with my philosophy. And so I'm not going to do it as super powerful. I mean, look at guys like Warren Buffett who have, you know, created a masterful investment philosophy. One of the big reasons why he didn't get into technology back in the late nineties, because he just didn't understand it and didn't fit with his philosophy. And, you know, obviously that played out really well for him during the, the, the tech bubble. (laughs) He looked looked really bad right up until he didn't. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Brilliant. Yeah. Right. So but that's just yeah. him staying true to his philosophy. And, and so right. having a philosophy and being able to straight stay true to it doesn't mean it can't change and develop over time, right. but it's not, you're not going to just change on a whim. You're going well, to, it takes time to update and, and make changes based on things that are happening. You know, it reminds me of back, back in the day, 
when a lot we were more investment oriented back at the beginning of my career and a lot of the folks that we met with also did stock trading on their own it was still the the day trading era and i remember talking with a senior advisor who told his clients in those situations that when you buy it, because the hardest thing to do is it's easier to research and choose a stock or a fund and buy it than it is to know when to get rid of it. Right. And, and so, you know, he had them create a philosophy of their own just by writing down the three re- key reasons why they were making a certain investment, hmm. whether it was a stock and you're buying it because, Hey, it's at a hundred dollars. You think it's going to go to 150 or it's a bond fund because you need some safe money for a certain, you know, outcome write down why you're buying it. And when that's, and pull that out once a quarter, once a month, whatever your time frame makes sense and read it back to yourself and look at your portfolio. And if those things aren't true anymore, it's time to make a change. Yeah, that's so, good. I like that. It takes know, a lot of the emotion out of it. Right, right. So it doesn't have to be a, you know, 10 point, you know, industry veteran jargony investment philosophy like you and I might create to at least have, you know, some beneficial effects. Absolutely. That is our philosophy and we're sticking to it. Yeah, I like it. So as always, if you have questions on investment philosophy or anything else, feel free to reach out info at srbadvisors.com. Otherwise, we look forward to um, seeing you on the next one. Yep. And we'll have the uh, the uh, 10 points in the uh, document on the website with, the, with this podcast note. So thanks, Nick. Sounds good. Pleasure as always, Dave. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.